We're in the first chapter. We're going to finish that chapter up tonight. Uh, I'm excited about what we're going to be taught. But even as Paul has surrendered himself, yielded himself, as he says in Romans, uh, a living sacrifice, he has a great big target on him, and so will you. You've got some enemies in this world, and so have I. The world system, the flesh, that's yours and everybody else's flesh nature, and the devil and all of his demons, and there is a big red target on your back. I mean, they're coming for you. But greater is he that is in me and he that is in you than he that is in the world. Aren't you glad that we've got such a great resource as the Lord himself as we stand against all of these? The Apostle Paul was coming under attack. And everybody and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not might, it is a shall. And you can count on that, you can take that to the bank. See, I don't want that to be so. Well, you can be in denial if you want to, but the truth of the matter is, if you stand for God, then others are going to come against you, but you're going to have the greatest resources in the universe. If you don't stand for God, you're going to fall for anything. So we need to stand up, stand up for Jesus. Amen. Paul was doing that. He was coming under attack. We're in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, beginning at verse number 12. Let's start right there. Verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We've got the right book, got the right chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. Please underscore that. The testimony of our conscience. Everybody's got one. Everybody's got one. Now, yours might be a seared Conscience. You know what? When you sear some meat, you know, it's like you, you burn it. And whenever you, you burn yourself, you lose sensation. A seared conscience is one that's numb. It's one that's not functioning. Everybody here has got a conscience. You got a conscience before you got saved. You had a conscience. And that conscience is like a moral compass. But it can be, it can be damaged. And some people have a seared conscience. So, here he's talking about the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Now the word conversation, underline it. It's in 2 Corinthians 1, 12, almost all the way through the verse where it says conversation. That means our lifestyle, our manner of living, that's what that's referring to, our pattern of life. And so that pattern of life is going to reveal something. What is your life's pattern? Tell everybody else who observes. What, what are you advertising? Uh, when, when we're just ourselves, when we're just ourselves, we're not putting on airs, not doing anything, we're just being ourselves, what does our lifestyle tell other people? Hopefully that we are caring, loving, sensitive, uh, upright believers. Hopefully that's the, the, the general impression that folks are going to get. And he's saying we have had our conversation in view of that conscience in the world and more abundantly to you word. The Apostle Paul is not defending himself. He's, he's a straight shooter. He's telling the truth. And everybody here ought to have that as a first 
and a foremost priority in life. Speak the truth. Live out the truth. It's about the truth. Be transformed by the truth. Stand for the truth. Let people see the truth. Be transparent. We're about the truth. That's what we want. Now, not everybody's going to like us. The devil's going to hate us. They're going to come against us. They're going to oppose us. They're going to try to get us off track and destroy us. Keep that in mind. That is constantly going to be the pressure that's going to be put on us. Now, let's continue on. Verse 13. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. In other words, he's saying, I said it, I meant it, I live it, and it's consistent. Who we are and what we stand for and uh, how, we, how we proclaim it should be consistent. It should be all lined up. The other day we had the joy and privilege once again of uh, being uh, Nana and Papa to our grandkids and watching them. And uh, while I was uh, sitting in my usual spot at the, at the breakfast table uh, in the kitchen, uh, out came James and he had connected magnetically all of the tr uh, trains, the little trains that we have that go on wooden tracks. And we have those being Nana and Papa like we are. And he had them all together and he was pulling a long line. And they're all lined up. I said, look at that. They're all lined up. Long line. Farther than I can stretch. He had a long line. He was making loop-de-loops and he was doing all that on the kitchen floor. Now, we expect that of him because he's four. You, I would not expect that of him. But he's, doing, he's got it all lined up. In the same way, this illustrates every part of our life should be consistently lined up with the Word of God. Thy Word have I hid in my heart. So our, our home life, our business life, our, our you know, uh, personal uh, times should all line up with the Word of God. That's important. And, and people should be able to see that. We shouldn't have to protest too loudly. They should see it automatically. All right, now, verse 14. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, the day of the Lord Jesus is referring prophetically to the rapture and the Bema judgment. And Paul wrote about this to the Philippian Christian. Do you remember that? He said, you are my rejoicing. You are my crown. He was talking about the people that have been won to Christ and discipled under his ministry. I got to say that you are my rejoicing. You are our rejoicing. You are my and our crown. And praise the Lord for that. You're the embodiment of the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord isn't just some structure but it's people, it's lives, and combinations of those groups of people, uh, homes and, and ministries, very important. And here he's saying, we acknowledge, and you acknowledge us, we acknowledge you. There, there is that relationship. The reason Paul is saying this is because uh, his uh, apostleship and his Christianity, his testimony, has been questioned by those who were attacking when, when you can't, when you don't have any substance for your attack. You start name-calling and going after people and, and uh, besmirching, there's a word for you, 
besmirching people's character and uh, their life. It's a terrible, terrible thing. I have a friend who, after being attacked, said to me after the incident, where do I go to get my reputation back? And that's so, so true. Here, Paul is saying, we know each other. We're family. We're interconnected. And that's what we have with those with whom we've been in the gospel together. Verse 15, and this, and in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that you might have a second benefit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. He thought he would stop through both directions. Hasn't done it yet. And even the fact that he hasn't done that yet has become the object of criticism. You know what that means? He's going to go through. He's going to come back through. And yet even though he is doing that, people have been talking against him. And, and he's become the object of their attack because he hasn't done this yet. It's, it's like, you know, you're attacked if you do, you're attacked if you don't. I mean, you can't win in that situation. In the court of man's judgmentalism, you and I will never win. When there are judgmental attackers, you will never win. And it doesn't do to get in. If you ever go one-on-one -on -one with a skunk, you're not going to come out ahead on that. You're gonna, you and the skunk are going to smell the same when you get done. It doesn't work for you to go one-on-one -on -one with a skunk. Learned that a long time ago. So he's saying, I'm, I'm, this is my intention. I'm being attacked. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I pur purposed? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. It wasn't back and forth. It wasn't flip-flop. It wasn't political. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus, that's Silas, it's long for Silas, and Timotheus, that's long for Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God, oh, I've seen this before, I preached on this Sunday. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. God keeps his promises. And we learned that Sunday. Now, he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us, branded us, and given us the earnest or the down payment of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's referred to elsewhere. The earnest of the Spirit is the down payment on what? Heaven. I know I'm going to heaven for numerous biblical reasons, but one very practical reason is I... I have, I sense him spiritually in me moving and speaking and working in and through me. And because I have the spirit, I've got the down payment on heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Amen. Amen. Verse 23, even though the subject is somewhat changing here, I'm going to shift to chapter 2. Let's read verses 23 and 24 to finish up tonight. We'll, we'll kind of we'll scoop it back in and, and our review next week. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. There it is. 
There it is. He's saying, what I've done so far, I did for what was best for you in your Christianity and your growth in your church. And that is the true desire of every spiritual leader. We feel like parents and grandparents, don't we, sweetie, when it comes to the people with whom we've worked. And there are some who have won souls, who have won souls, who have won souls. And so I don't know what that makes me a great, great, great something. And, and we're very proud in a positive way, very pleased in a positive way that we have uh, babies and grandbabies and great-grandbabies and great-great-grandbabies in the faith very pleased with that. But the truth of the matter is we are very cautious. I would never do anything that would endanger uh, our children or grandchildren in the flesh. I would never do that. And if, if there was danger, I would, I would become uh, a wall of defense. I'd take a bullet for my kids and grandkids and die for them if necessary. I would do whatever uh, would be necessary. If there was a, a mad, rabid dog, I would block the, the path and stop the dog from hurting my babies. And that's the way we feel also in the ministry. We know that there are many rabid dogs out there and many nasty uh, influences that will hurt the, the children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren uh, in the faith. And we don't want that to happen. The Apostle Paul is like a father-slash-mother figure to these people. And he has that nourishing, loving concern for them, as we do. And tonight, as we're talking about this, there's a right way and a wrong way to answer false charges. And the wrong way is to do a big self-defense and to be haughty about it. The right way is to say, you know what? I'm sorry for you that you've taken it upon yourself to attack the, the preacher. I feel sorry for you. I feel bad for you because I know what the results are going to be eventually. You may think you got it right, but the truth of the matter is you didn't ask me. And if you needed a list of all of my flaws, I could have given you a long one. But here you just got a short one and it's not true. Now we have been attacked in our life and, and usually uh, they get it wrong. Usually it's not right. We have never said we're perfect, sinless or flawless. But I'll tell you one thing, there is nothing wrong with our heart's desire for you. There is nothing wrong with what we would like to see accomplished in and through the lives of the people with whom we work. So that's not it. When Paul was attacked, they, they picked on the wrong object. They picked on the wrong apostle. And so he's, he's answering false charges, and he's doing it with a clear conscience. Let's pray. Father, I would ask now that you'll help me as we talk about these important things and help us, Lord, not to get swept away with all of the accusations that come our way by different people at different times. Pray, Lord, that we might be right with you and know that to be true and that others might have confidence in the way that you're working uh, through us and our leadership in the ministry. They would realize we're flawed, but that we have the Word of God and we have that authority and that position that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Oswald Chambers said this, How Jesus Christ does cleanse our conscience. It is freedom not only from sin and the damage sin has done, <clears throat> but emancipation from the impairing left by sin, from all the distortions left in mind and imagination. Then when our conscience has been cleansed from dead works 
Jesus Christ gives us the marvelously healing ministry of intercession as a clearinghouse for conscience. Not only is all sense of past guilt removed, but we are given the very secret heart of God for the purpose of vicarious intercession. Now, vicarious intercession means that like Jesus is ever interceding for you and me, we can intercede for others as well. The, the grace that God gives us, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, uh, you know how it says in Romans, excuse me, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, he's our great high priest, and, and he's given it, we come boldly that we might find grace to help. That grace to help, here it is, two applications. That's grace to help me. That's grace to help me help you too. Grace to help in time of need. That's what our great high priest does for us. When our conscience, which can be impaired, it can be seared, it can be, it can be wounded, it can be harmed, when it is cleansed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we can also enter into that vicarious intercession. Tonight, if you don't get anything else out of this, you that are viewing and you that are here, we want to come to the altar and say, Lord Jesus, I want a vicarious ministry of intercession. I want to be able to come boldly and help. I've had the privilege once or twice or more in my lifetime of standing up for somebody that was falsely accused. I'll never forget back in my freshman year of Bible college, there was an international student. It's not important to know the details, but he had been falsely accused. And he said, oh, Whitaker, I'll never see you again. And I had taken upon myself to become kind of the on-campus best friend of all the international uh, young men that were there. And, and this, this young man from uh, somewhere out in the third world was, was about to get kicked out for something he didn't do. Somebody else had lied about it, and I knew it. And I said, I'm, I'm going in with you. I did something that was not permitted. I went in in front of the disciplinary uh, people, and I said, this person has not done it. Here's what happened. Here's who lied. Here's what did. And, and uh, I reminded them that my father was on the board of the college, and that didn't hurt. And then I said, he hasn't done anything that any of the rest of us haven't ever done. And I said, if you kick him out, you got to kick me out too. I said that. I couldn't believe the words came out of my mouth, but I said that. You know what? That young man walked out of that room scot-free and so did I. Because somebody had stood up and said something. Somebody had to. Now somebody else might have said, well, I'm going to save my own skin. I'm going to save my own skin. No, I went in there and I said, he's not guilty of anything. It's all been overstated, been blown out of proportion. It's not true. And he's been lied about. And if you kick him out, you got to kick me out and everybody else too. Because we're all just as guilty, but on just a little tiny, small scale that you're talking about here. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to stand up for people and try to help them if you possibly can. This is what the Apostle Paul was saying. He was saying, I'm not guilty of the things that are being said about me. Now, in the healing of the wounded church by Pastor Dwight Tomlinson, a friend of mine, by the way, man who started a couple of churches in the Bay Area of San Francisco and... Um, and pastored a church in Southern California. In between times, he was a missionary church planter over in uh, Asia. 
and uh, still a dear friend of mine. Dwight Tomlinson said this, I encourage you to choose your battles and also choose when you fight them. Don't compromise, but don't think you have to fight every battle the first six months you're in a pastorate. The truth is many times we fight a battle not because we love God and the people, but because we're afraid that a preacher friend will think poorly of us if we don't clean up the church immediately. Well, that's the truth. Somebody here might be guilty of that. All right, the sooner we stop fearing what the brethren think and worry only about what God thinks, the better off everybody will be. You don't have to give an answer to your Bible college or fellowship for your ministry, my friend, but to God. And here's what he says. Put this down. While killing the weeds in God's garden, do your best not to destroy the flowers. While, while, while killing the weeds in God's garden, do your best not to destroy the flowers. Thank you. Dr. Tomlinson, what a dear friend you are and what a great, great approach you have to those, uh, those difficulties that we all face in the ministry. The Apostle Paul, in giving his testimony before the powers that be in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, said this, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God, and toward men. How do you get that? Well, that's by submitting to the Holy Spirit in your life. That's by being transparent, by being open. And Paul lived, here it is, by God's grace. And he did so by Jesus Christ. He set his mind and his life upon Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do every day, every hour of the day, keep our mind on Jesus and in so doing, uh, rather than trying to follow simply earthly rules and procedures and principles that are brought up by the fleshly mind, we need to keep uh, clear and we need to stay focused on Jesus Christ. See, this is where the legalists of Jesus' day had it wrong. They brought the sinful woman taken in adultery in the very act to Jesus who was teaching and threw her at his feet and said, what will you do? Even though they didn't bring the gentleman, they just brought the female and, and uh, decided to put her in the midst. And the, of course, uh, the Old Testament law uh, would permit stoning. It hadn't been done in some time, but would permit stoning. But Jesus Christ showed first things first. What did he care about? cared about the people. He cared about the soul. So he kneels down and begins to write in the sand. Nobody knows what he wrote in the sand, but all of those legalists that were around him demanding, you know, testing him to see if he was going to keep the Old Testament law and judge this woman and have her stoned to death on the spot. See, one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, begin to leave. It has been suggested, and I don't know this for a fact, I don't have any extra biblical uh, information here, but it's been suggested that maybe he was writing in the sand the names of females that these legalists had either had an affair with or lusted after. Maybe, and one by one, they disappear. Where are thine accusers? They're gone. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He was interested in the individual. A preacher friend of mine told me how that early on in his ministry, he had 
uh, had a group from a Bible college come in. And we've had, over the years, numerous good groups from good Bible colleges come present their ministry. And usually they'll have a trio or a quartet or a group of musicians, and they'll have uh, a, an older couple traveling with them usually. And usually that man will preach a message to promote the college so that any young students or potential students might think about going to Bible college there. And he said he turned over the entire hour to this group, and they sang some beautiful music, and after about 20, 30 minutes, the preacher got up to preach. And he began to preach against gender confusion, except he used the word queer over and over and over and over again. And that preacher sank lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. Now, I know what perversion is. I know what sin is. I also know that Jesus Christ died to save those people. And we cross paths in the 21st century. We cross paths all the time. If you eat at restaurants and if you shop in certain places of business, you're going to have people serve you or work with you or interact with you who are gender confused. And so what do you do? You live Jesus Christ before them. You speak the truth in love. You don't come on like gangbusters attacking them. You're never going to win them to Jesus Christ if you call names. That's the devil's side to call names. We don't call names. We stand up and we say, God created male and female. Male and female created he them. And we understand the scripture. We understand that people are confused. And we love souls, just like God loves souls. We don't love sin, but we love sinners. And so, here we have it. you got to choose your battles. When to fight them and how to fight them. And there are some battlefields, dear friends, I'm not going to die on tonight. And I'll tell you, there are, some, there are some approaches to sin and to problems that Christians have not a clue. We have, uh, in our catalog of classes and courses to take. We have our fifth and sixth years of Bible Institute, which uh, deal with the cults and with world religions. And eventually, you all need to get into that. That's the postgraduate level, and you can, you can develop uh, tremendous abilities in dealing with the lost. Dr. Hancock used to love the way that we would deal with cults and world religions, and win people to Jesus Christ. He said, Brad, you need to write a book on winning all kinds of people to Jesus. And I wish I won more, but the truth of the matter is we have learned we don't want to, to win the debate with a cult member or an adherent to a world religion. We want to win their soul to Jesus. That's it. That's why we're in the fight. We're not in the fight. Just come out and say, ah, I guess I showed him. Man, I told him off. Wow. And I've heard preachers get up and just slam every kind of world religion and every kind. Listen, error is error. Doctrinal wrong is wrong. That's true. But to make fun of people and to call names is absolutely off the chart and wrong. You and I are never going to win this lost world to Jesus by ridicule. Come on now. It may, it may make some preacher feel... Uh, proud, like strutting his stuff when he does it. But I wonder how many souls he sent to hell this week. Come on. Amen. Good preaching, preacher. Got to choose your battles. 
You got to choose when to fight them, how to fight them. And we do that choosing by the Spirit. We do it with a clear, clean conscience controlled by the Spirit of God, directed, a life that's directed with the desire to win somebody to Jesus Christ. And we show love and compassion. How many times, sweetie? I mean, it, either you or I or both of us, it's like, you know, we're both speaking at the same time sometimes. We get served in a restaurant by somebody that may represent one of the things we've talked about tonight. We look at each other and we say almost the same time at somebody's son or daughter. Amen. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. Lord, help us to win them. Lord, help us to win them. Amen. We show kindness and love and the fullness of the Spirit all the time. And we're supposed to do that. Let me give you one more. Here's a, here's a battlefield you don't want to die on. You may have a personal enemy, somebody who has taken it upon himself or herself to destroy you. Would we be willing to lay ourselves on the altar of consecration in order to win them to Jesus Christ? Helping them to line up with the book. Helping them to line up with Jesus Christ. Oh, they've hurt me. They've hurt me so deeply. Ah, but not, not as bad as Jesus hurt for us. Come on now. And we, we, need to, we need to choose our battles so that the maximum good can be done for the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That, that's it. That is it. So uh, our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. It, it counted for something. That's what Paul is saying tonight. He's saying, made it count. I made it get to the point where it actually produced something for eternity. That's it. The testimony of his life, the grace of his willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ. I'll never forget what J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, my friend, if today you're on a bed of pain and you're still in the will of God, that bed of pain can become a greater pulpit than the one that preachers stand behind. Woo! Think about that. The problem, the difficulty, the circumstance, the situation, that hateful thing that's being leveled at you, that, that fight that you're in, that difficulty that you're facing can become a more powerful pulpit than what I preach behind. Think about that. Paul is saying, when I came to you before, wasn't I a blessing to you then? I want to come again and be a second benefit, a second blessing. There it is. Sometimes folks that are in the Wesleyan movement talk about the second blessing. To them, that means that they get to a point they think where they're never going to sin again in this body, in this flesh. And my reaction to that is to say, let me step away here until the lightning strikes because... Every one of us is a sinner saved by grace, and we all got a sin nature. Until God takes us home, we're always going to have that too. But the second benefit that he's talking about is being a blessing again and again, even after being attacked. He wants to come and be a blessing. Even after being picked on, persecuted, having a difficult road to go, he wants to be a blessing. Wow, wow. So much so that all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, 
under the glory of God by us. Now, Sunday I preached about God keeping His promises. This application here is, Paul is saying, God wants to keep His promises through us, through our life, in our example. Think about that. There's somebody out there that's this close to being totally committed to never believing in Jesus Christ, to never accept His gift, free gift of salvation. They're this close, and you can either pull them back from the edge or kick them over by how we live, by how we talk, by our attitude. I pray it's a godly, Christ-like attitude, not some stinking attitude in the nostrils of God. Amen. We can, by having the indwelling Holy Spirit minister through us, can touch those folks and pull them back. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's got God's brand on it. In the last roundup, uh, God's going to collect all of His. It's not going to be a problem because we got the brand of the Holy Spirit on us. Don't worry about that. God's put His Holy Spirit into every believer in this church age, and that is the down payment. So here we have the Apostle Paul saying to them, I want to come to you and be a blessing again, like I was the first time. I want to, I want to be a blessing to you again and again and again. And what, what is the need? What is the need? They need to be strengthened. This is a, an immature baby church that needs to grow up. And they need Paul, like a spiritual parent, to come in and show that nurture and that admonition and that love and that acceptance. Everybody in the whole universe needs to be loved. Everybody in the whole universe needs to experience acceptance. Everybody in the whole universe needs to get some positive reinforcement, some approval. Everybody needs that. So instead of coming, wielding a machete, you know, and just being wild about this, he comes, and he's coming as a loving parent, as a loving apostle. And he's experienced the grace of God. He wants to demonstrate the, the, uh, the blessing of the grace of God in his life to others as well. We want to give that help wherever we can. Now, they can reject it, but it won't be on Paul's account. It won't be on his head. They can, they can turn him down. They can go on, but he's going to give them every opportunity, and so should we. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something, something in that Bible study spoke to my heart. Slip your hand up high. Come on. Spoke to my heart. Yes. So many hands raised. Yes. God bless you. I don't know what you need to do tonight in the way of meeting with the Lord, but we're going to give you an opportunity to do that as we have an invitation to Him in just a moment. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to urge you right now to pray. Say, Lord Jesus, come in my heart and save me right now. Take away my sin. Uh, take me to heaven when I die.